I wonder if you come on Sunday morning uh, like I approach Fogo de Chao or Texas State Brazil. <laughs> you know, I've been to those places a few times. It's like a Brazilian steakhouse. And, you know, when I've gone to places like that where I know I'm going to have this sweet culinary experience, I, I go with expectation, I go hungry, and I feast, and I leave satisfied, Right? And so I hope you gather every Lord's Day with expectation, hungry, and I pray that you leave satisfied. And I think for me, you know, I'm I'm not preaching personal anecdotes. Uh, I hope you don't come hungry because of me. Come hungry because we're opening God's Word. But as the one preaching, you know, I I don't know if you knew this, but I used to be a cook in a restaurant. I wasn't very good, but um, when I was in Bible college, I I wasn't intending on sharing this at all. This is just when I was getting ready to come up. Um... I worked at uh, Johnny Carino's, now I think it's just called Carino's Italian Kitchen, um, in Dallas, and I wanted to wait tables when I was in college, and they didn't have a job, a waiter job. The guy, the manager, I sat down and said, hey, can you cook? And I said, I can learn. And so they taught me for two weeks. I, I shadowed, and I cooked. And again, I wasn't great, but man, when we'd have like a Friday night, and you'd see all these families come in. I mean, there was like this weight. Like, I, I got to prepare food for these people. And I worked hard. I practiced. And I got better. I, I wasn't great. The guy who worked, like the, the head chef, Pepe, I mean, he was just a stud. I mean, blindfold him, and he would still do better than me. But that, that's how I feel. You know, this is heavy. And so I come with expectation. I hope you come with expectation. But let's do this together. Let's get into God's Word together. Amen? Let's feed, and I, I pray we leave satisfied. Um, Exodus 19 is my passage, our passage together. So I mentioned this last week. We've been taking large chunks, typically a chapter at a time. Next week, we're going to slow down. We're going to really not just pump the brakes, but slam the brakes. And we're going to take Exodus 20, 10 weeks. We're going to take each commandment, each of the 10, one week at a time. And then we'll kind of continue our fast pace after that. All right, so Exodus 19, there's so much here. Oh, here we go. The title, Chosen from the World and for the World. And the big idea, this is the big idea of Exodus 19. God rescues his people to rescue others, to resemble him, and enjoy a relationship with him. So think four R's. God rescues us to rescue. God rescues us to resemble him. And God rescues us for the purpose of a relationship. Um, when I was in seminary, my, my main Hebrew professor, Dr. Gary Pratico. So Gary Pratico is pretty renowned as a Hebrew scholar. He, he's written, anywhere you go to school, if you study Hebrew, you're, you're going to use his book. He's, he's written the book on biblical Hebrew. And before he took the job at Gordon-Conwell, where I studied, he was the curator of the Semitic Museum at Harvard University, where he did his PhD. So a really sharp guy. But when I'd go to his office to meet with him or ask him questions, I'd look around and be like, wow, this guy has all these really cool pictures of famous dig sites all over the world, Europe, uh, all over Asia. And come to find out, he was an archaeologist. He was Indiana Jones. <laughs> Seriously, like my professor was a godly version of Indiana Jones. And so, you know, he'd been all over the world before he was a professor. And he'd been a part of all these famous digs. And I remember him saying in class one day, he said, you know, listen, I've studied all the different religions, you know, in the, in the, in the Near East, the, the people groups surrounding Israel, and there's this 
incredible difference between how those peoples approach God and the God we see in the Bible. And he said, imagine a man standing on top of a mountain. And he's reaching out desperately to God, beating his chest, doing all that he can to get God's attention. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible comes to us. The God of the Bible takes the initiative. We could call it the great condescension. God leaves his throne. He comes to the world. He becomes man. Jesus Christ lives, dies, and is raised for our salvation. Amen? There's no comparison. You don't see that anywhere else. He said, who can we compare the God of the Bible to? No one. He makes himself gloriously known, and he takes the initiative to save. There is no one like our God, the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So the structure of our passage, it's really easy to follow. This is really helpful. So Exodus 19, 1 to 15, we have God's call, God's commission over his people. And then in the second half, we have God's character. And what grounds his call? Why do we go, church? Because of who he is. Amen? We go because of who he is, how he's revealed himself. And so we have God's call and then God's character. And what grounds his call? His character. We go because he's holy. He's worthy. He's awesome. Amen? Okay, I thought that was really simple. You do too. You're just tired today. Wake up. Here's the setting. This is really helpful. This is really important. The mountain. You know, I spent 10 years outside of Seattle. The, the mountains were my backyard. It was beautiful. I love the mountains. I miss the mountains. Who spent time in the mountains? Mountains are glorious, right? Especially when you get to the top. Did you know that in the Bible, the mountain is a place of expectation? Did you know that? Important things happen in the Bible, and the setting typically is a mountainous setting. It's a mountainous context. So... In the Bible, the mountain is a place of expectation, a place where the Lord often meets with his people. Now, as I mentioned last week, we see God's faithfulness on display. Fulfillment is happening because, if you remember, the first mountain is seen in Exodus is in chapter 3, where God appears to who? Moses at Horeb or Mount Sinai in the burning bush. And what does he say in verse 12? of chapter 3. But I'll be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So we've come full circle. What Moses saw and heard and experienced on the mountain, Israel, corporate Israel, now brought to the mountain would see and hear and experience. God shows up in fire, Exodus 3. God appears in Exodus 19 on the mountain in... Fire. Good. All right. So I want us to examine this pattern in Scripture, namely the significance of the mountain as a place of divine meeting and divine provision, a place of worship. So Genesis 22. That's a tough passage, man. Abraham finally got a boy, Isaac, right? Son of promise. What does God demand of Abraham? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? But then, God knew what he was doing, right? He was testing his faith, his obedience. God would provide. We get to verse 14. What has God provided? A ram of sacrifice, a substitute. 
Verse 14 of Genesis 22. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So again, the mountain is a place of provision. And then we go to the New Testament. And a lot of important things happen in the New Testament, in the Gospels, on the, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then we get the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. to Mark 9, Luke 9, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus reveals his glory, his resurrection glory. It's a preview of what is to come. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And then, of course, the most comparable passage in the New Testament to what we see in Exodus 19 is what? Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 16, and 17, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. So in these different passages, and again, there's more, it's always time, there's more, that's why you read books, you can get more. (laughs) In these different passages, we see the Lord graciously on the mountain, coming to his people, giving them his word, revealing his glory, and providing for their needs. So, is the mountain an important place in the Bible? Yes, of course. All right, that was just a little introduction. What does Exodus 19 teach us about the Lord and his people, and how does Exodus 19 point to Christ and the church? I have four points. I'm going to move pretty quickly with point one. So just, I listen to podcasts sometimes, and I always listen to them at 1.5 speed. I have to. I just, there's, there's stuff to do, right? And so this might be 1.5, just for the first point, and then I'll slow down. Number one, God rescues his people. Amen. What do we learn about God in the Bible? He, he rescues his people. Why does he do that? He's good. He's faithful. He's gracious. What do we know about Israel? Israel was a rescued people. We saw this emphasized last week in Exodus 18, four times. The verb appears, natsal, in Hebrew, and natsal denotes rescue or deliverance. Now, this is really important. This is actually point four, so I'm giving you a little hint of what's to come. But God rescues his people for relationship. For what? Relationship. He doesn't just save us and say, okay, good luck, peace out. But he saves us to know him and be known by him. Amen? He saves us for relationship. And so the context of Exodus 19 and 20 is one of covenant. Covenant. It's an important word, by the way. The Lord of rescue is entering into a covenant with Israel, his rescued people. Now, this may be a little dense, but I'm going to talk about this more next week because we're going to look at kind of the covenant structure of Exodus 20. But in, ancient, in the ancient Near East, in ancient times, this is, this is how covenants were made. You would have a small nation, okay? And maybe this small nation was surrounded by other enemy nations. And they're losing the battle. They are getting whooped. And then, a big nation 
with a big king comes in and says, hey, dude, we got you. We're going to rescue you. They destroy those enemy nations. They rescue this struggling nation. And then they enter into a covenant with them. Okay? Now, the big king, the bigger nation was called the suzerain. The smaller nation, the smaller king was called the vassal. Okay? So, to begin this covenant ceremony, you had what's called the historical prologue. And it was a way of reviewing the rescue. Hey, okay, hey guys, we're going to enter into a covenant, but remember, we, the suzerain, saved you, the little guy. You were dying. You had your back against the wall, and we intervened and we saved you. Don't forget that. So the historical prologue was a review, it was a historical review of God's salvation. And we see that in Exodus 19. Listen to verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And what did God do to the Egyptians? He destroyed them, right? With the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. They're taken off after Israel. And what happens? They get covered with the waters. No mas. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, we learn what kind of covenant this is. In the next two verses, it is a conditional covenant. It's not unconditional like the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant or the new covenant. In these covenants, in the unconditional covenants, God acts unilaterally. God just does it. It's not based on what Abraham does or David does. It's based on God, his grace and his goodness. So in Genesis 12... God makes the promise, through Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. God is going to rescue the world through Abraham's family, okay? And then we get to chapter 15, and there's this kind of strange ceremony. Do you remember what happened? Some animals are killed, the pieces are cut in two, and they're like a little pathway. So you got, I mean, basically dead animal carcasses, there's a pathway between them, and God puts Abraham asleep. (laughs) He's snoozing. Now, typically... In this type of covenant ceremony, two kings, you have the suzerain, who's the what king? The strong king. And then you have the vassal, who's the, the weaker king, who was rescued. And the big king and the small king would join arms, and they would walk through the pieces together. And what that symbolized was this. If you break your end of the covenant, may this be our fate. If I break my end, may this be my fate. Okay? Now, in Genesis 15, only God passes through. What's God saying? Abraham, even if you're not faithful, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring my promises to fulfillment. Wow! That's an unconditional covenant. What we see in Exodus 19 with the Mosaic covenant is conditional, meaning there are conditions. Exodus 19, 5 to 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So note the conditions. Israel would continue in the land, and the Lord would be with them there if, everybody say if, that's the conditional clause, if they obeyed his voice and kept his covenant. Disobedience, on the other hand, would nullify the covenant and invite God's wrath exile. So, While the Mosaic Covenant and the giving of the law, which we'll see next week, is still pregnant with the grace of God, meaning 
Did God say, I'm only going to rescue you if you obey my law? No, he rescues them first and then gives them the law. Isn't that grace? Okay, we agree there. But what does the law function to do? Three things here. This is good to remember, by the way. The law, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, but the law functions to diagnose, reveal, and preview. The law diagnoses Israel's and our sinful hearts. It reveals the problem, right? It shows the problem. So the law diagnoses Israel's sinful hearts. It reveals, here's the second part, it reveals God's holiness and Israel's need for a Savior. And it previews the coming one who would perfectly fulfill the covenant stipulations for God's people in their place. So what does the law do? Diagnoses, reveals, previews. The promise is made in Genesis 3, verse 15. Genesis 12, verse 3. Evil crushed. God's people rescued. Who would do that? Who would fulfill that? Jesus. Jesus. So, here's the pattern in our passage so far. God rescues. Everybody say, God rescues. We've seen that, and it was beautiful, and it was glorious. Here, God invites his rescued people into a covenant that calls for obedience. God's rescued people say, we agree. Everything you said, we'll do. And as we'll see next week in Exodus 20, and for the 10 weeks, right, the next 10 weeks, God gives his rescued people his word by which he means to rule over them. Amen? So God rescues his people, and then he gives them his word by which he means to rule over them. Exodus 19, 7-8, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now, I could probably skip this, but I'm not. I want to make sure we understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant before moving on, okay? Really quick. Even under the Old Covenant, even under the Old Covenant, salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in the coming Messiah. You've got to know that. Paul makes that point in Romans 4 with Abraham. And yet, this is really important. The Old Covenant was primarily one marked by shadows and promises, looking ahead to the gospel of grace. The blood of bulls and goats could not definitively remove our sin. It's true. The sacrificial system under the Old Covenant was a pointer. It was a pointer to something greater, someone greater. Who's that? Jesus. And Jesus himself has established the new covenant from start to finish through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. Jesus, at the cross, accomplished our forgiveness. Somebody say amen. Amen. Jesus. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, and he writes his law on our hearts. And the giving of the Spirit is the guarantee that we who trust in Jesus will get to our intended destination, which is the new heaven and the new earth. Now, is that based on anything we do? Do we add to that? 
Is it based on our efforts? Say it in Spanish. No. Christ acts unilaterally. He did it from start to finish. All right. So, point number one. Now we're going to slow down a little bit. God rescues his people. Now, then what? Point number two. God's rescued people are a commissioned people. We're a sent people. Amen? God rescues us for rescue. Exodus 19, 5-6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you sh- here's the key phrase. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, God's... Oh, there's so much I could say here. This is so cool. God's act of commissioning his people is not unique to Israel in Exodus 19. This is God's pattern for his people throughout the Bible. Now, before looking to the New Testament, let's go back to Genesis 1. And if we had more time, we'd look at Genesis 12 and Isaiah 6, other examples where God commissions his people. He is a commissioning God. Let's go back to the very beginning. God's commission of Adam and Eve. This is 1, chapter 1, Genesis 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, here it is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What does God commission his people for? What is the purpose? His Glory, his glory, the spread of his fame. Adam and Eve, God's image bearers, were to have more image bearers, and they were to expand the boundaries of the garden, exercising God's dominion over his creation in a way that mirrored or reflected God's dominion. And this for his glory. Okay, I've shared this illustration at least three times since I've been here. In the ancient world, when a king would conquer a new land, what would he do? The first thing, he would set up an image of himself in that new land. And what did that declare? My glory resides here. My power, my fame, and my authority. God makes us in his image. He commissions us to make more image bearers, to expand the boundaries of the garden, and that for his what? His glory. Amen? Now, come on, we're, we're going to quickly in a minute go to the Great Commission. You're going to see the same thing, the same purpose. Now, before we go to the New Testament and look elsewhere, let's make sure that we understand God's commission of Israel in Exodus 19, 5-6. What is God commissioning Israel to do and be? Exodus 19, 5 and 6. God commissions his rescued people, amen? Here it is. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And here it is, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Everybody say, kingdom of priests. That's pretty good. Holy nation. Even better. Good job. All right. What was the job of a priest? A priest's job, their vocation, was to mediate God's presence to others. A priest... Their job was to connect 
people to God. Israel's vocation, their job as a kingdom of priests, was to connect the nations to God. But how? By being a holy nation, by embodying the holiness of God before the world, by being a light, by being a light. The law given to Israel revealed God's what? His holiness. God is holy. Israel, by embodying God's law, was meant to display the holiness of God before the world, before the nations. Now listen, there's one scholar that said it really well. He said, Israel, rather than surrounding the light with windows so that it could shine out, surrounded it with mirrors and kept it to themselves. But what were they called to do? To let it shine for the nations. Now, who did that perfectly? We can all agree that Israel failed in their vocation. They became like the nations. But who came as the true light of the world? I'm not moving on until I hear it. I wanted a kid to say it because the kids always speak so quick. But Jesus, Jesus. Tim Chester notes, As a priestly kingdom, Israel was to represent God to the world through mission and represent the world to God through prayer. The world could not see God but the world could see Israel and should have seen his glory in them. Oh, that's good. That's not mine. That's Tim Chester's. (laughs) Now, this same language, this same Exodus 19 language is applied to Christ in his church in John 8, Matthew 5, 1 Peter 2, Matthew 28. This is remarkable. John 8, 12. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the true light. The one who perfectly embodies the character of God before the world. In fact, Jesus came for the world. And those who are in Christ, the light of the world, are called and empowered to be lights to the world. We share in the king's vocation through him. And this is our calling as well, church. Where Israel failed, Christ succeeded. And he did that also through his body, the church. Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, 9-11, this is so clear. He's talking to the church here, composed of Jews and Gentiles. But you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's directly from Exodus 19. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Be what? holy. Again, this is the language of Exodus 19. This is intentional. Christ has accomplished the new, greater Exodus. And the church is his rescued, commissioned people, his light in the world people. If you're part of the church, raise your hand. Guess what you're a part of? His light in the world people. Chester writes, the missional identity which Israel received at Mount Sinai is fulfilled in the church. The church is the people chosen to be a kingdom of priests 
who make God known to the world. The church, Peter says, is the nation which is holy as God is holy so that it displays his character. We are the people who declare the praises of God and display the holiness of God to the nations. And then we come to the Great Commission. The Great Commission where the parallels with Exodus 19 beautifully abound. Let's read the Great Commission, starting in verse 17, Matthew 28. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, not some, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And on the basis of that, his authoritative claim, what does he say? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what? All that I've commanded you. And the promise, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here we have the same mountainous setting or context. Here we see worship in the Lord's matchless authority on display. Here we have the Lord commissioning his rescued people to go to the nations to make disciples in this for his what? For his glory. Through preaching the gospel church, the spirit of God regenerates the lost, creating new image bearers for the glory of Christ Jesus. What we learn in the Great Commission and what we saw back in Exodus 19, what does God say about the earth? It's what? It's were you listening? Exodus 19? It's mine. It's all mine. And what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And from that authority comes the commission, church. Because he is worthy and because he is king, he says go and we say, yes. Yes, sir. Yes, Lord. Yes, king. Yes, savior. The Lord's authority is far-reaching. It knows no bounds. And the authority of God is recognized through the preaching and the reception of the gospel as disciples of Jesus are made. And this should motivate our evangelism, namely an undivided desire to see God's authority, his fame, and his glory known and embraced. Two more passages, and then on to our next point. One in John, and one in 1 John. John 1.18. Who knows John 1.18? No one has seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, who has made him known. Who's that? Who's God the one and only at the Father's side, who's made God known? That's the Son of God, Jesus, right? That's an incredible text. Christ came to reveal God as the light of the world. And as the light, he came to create a people for himself to be lights to the world. Okay, candlelight service, one person has a light, and then what happens? What's their job? Start lighting candles, right? And that's, a, I think, a pretty good picture of what Jesus does. He is the light. We hear the gospel by grace. We turn from sin and trust in Jesus. And now what are we? We are, we're lights. <laughs> He's the light. We're lights. How do I know that? First John 4.12. No one has ever seen God. That is word for word what John 1.18 says. No one has ever seen God. Now he's talking to the church. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. When we, church, live as God's people, his people in fellowship together before the world, we make the invisible God visible. This is our vocation through who? Through Christ. The risen Christ. Is he raised? 
Amen. The risen Christ continues to reveal God through his, through his people, his body, the church. Church, how are we doing here? How are we right now seeking to make disciples? We are a commissioned people, a people called by Jesus and empowered by the Spirit to make disciples. How are we doing? How are you doing here? If I asked you, what is the 14P challenge? Who could tell me? Raise your hand. A few of you could tell me. One of you. Anna, thank you. And you fish. That's great. Find one person in your relational world who doesn't know Christ, an unbeliever. Commit to four things. Start praying for them. Start planning how you're going to engage them. Make sure that you're practicing the gospel before them, living out the Christian life, being a light. And number four, you got to proclaim. you got to proclaim. How many gospel conversations do you have a week, a month, a year? How often do you encourage fellow believers to share the gospel? How often, when you meet with fellow Christians, are you talking about unbelievers, not behind their back, but you're taking them before the Lord in prayer, saying, God, save them. Give us boldness to take your good news to them. We have been rescued to rescue. So let's get to it. Amen? Let's get to it. Number three. So, God rescues his people. His rescued people are a commissioned people. Number two. Number three. God's rescued people are to be a holy people. Oh, this is good. And I hope it makes us all uncomfortable. God's rescued people are to be a what people? A holy, set-apart people. Again, why did Israel fail their vocation? Because instead of being distinct from the world, they became like the world. They failed to embrace God's call for them to be what? Holy. But who is perfectly holy in our place? Christ. As we noted earlier, one of the ways God's people were to fulfill their vocation was through their set-apartness, their holiness, their distinctive godlike lives. Now, write this down. Write this down. Our Holiness, our holiness prepares the ground for our evangelism. Amen? Our holiness prepares the ground for our evangelism, for our gospel proclamation. Israel's holiness would be on display through their obedience to the Lord. By embodying his word, they would be embodying his character, his holiness, and this for his glory. So, God rescues his people to rescue. God rescues his people to resemble him. We've been rescued to rescue. We've been rescued to resemble. And this for his, his glory. Again, sadly, Israel, rather than resembling God, resembled the nations they were called to shine for and shine to. So there's two ideas here. There's two ideas here. Here, here they are. God commissions He commissions his people and he calls his commissioned people to be what? To be holy. Tim Chester notes, Israel was chosen from the world, but they were also chosen for the world. Church, Christ, thankfully, Christ has fulfilled the law as our perfect, holy substitute. Again, what does the law reveal? Our inadequacies. It diagnoses our sinful hearts. When we look at the law, we see quickly 
I'm not holy. I'm a sinner. I need a... What do sinners need? I need a Savior. I need a substitute. I need someone to do it for me in my place. And who is that? Who lived a perfectly holy life? I love what Sproul says. R.C. Sproul says, not only did Christ die for us, but he lived for us. Oh, what's the debt we owe? We owe God a perfect life because he's holy. So because God's holy, we owe him a holy life. We are unholy. And what does that deserve? What's the payout? What are the wages? Death, punishment, God's wrath. Here's the good news. Not only did Christ pay our debt, living a holy life, a perfectly holy life in our place, he also took the punishment at the cross we deserve. And that for our salvation. Amen? Come on, friends. Why holy? I'm going to skip a little bit. Why holy? Why should we be holy? Why? Tell me why. Tell me why. Never will I do that again. I'm so sorry, Dave. It just came to me. <coughs> I should have spontaneous. Why holy? Because God is holy. We have been rescued to resemble Him. Amen? Everybody say it. We have been rescued to resemble Him. And holy means dedicated to God. But more than that, it means like God. There's a moral dimension to holiness. And we see that with the fruit of the Spirit. Why do we get the Spirit? So that we look like who? Our holy rescuer. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those God saves, He gives His Spirit to so that we resemble Him and that for His glory. All right, last point. Actually, it's not, but bear with me. Number four. It's the last point in the first half, and then rapid fire. So number four, God rescues his people. God rescues us to rescue. God rescues us to resemble him. And then lastly, this is so good, God rescues us for a relationship. God rescues people to be his people. His people. If you're his, you're his. You belong to him. Clark is mine. Samantha is mine. Luke is mine. They're my kids. Mine and Haley's. <laughs> if you've trusted in Jesus, guess what? You're God's kids. You belong to Him. You're His children. Exodus 19.5 Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. God rescues us to rescue. God rescues us to resemble Him. And finally, God rescues us for a relationship. And that should humble us. That should wow. Okay, are you telling me, Chris, that the God of the universe who spoke creation into being did all of that to save me and not just to save me from my sins but to have a relationship with me? No, that's too good. Well, that's why we call it the, the good news. <laughs> God rescued his people to be his treasured possession. The Hebrew word here, it's a tough one. Subalah. Think sugar. Maybe not. I don't know. Sugala. Treasured possession. R. Allen Cole writes, the word sugala, treasured possession, means special treasure. Belonging privately to a king. And this implies special value. So valued as well as special relationships. So think, as his treasured possession were valued 
and we're valued for a relationship. Amen? Oh! I mean, come on. Does that wow you? Does that humble you that the God of the universe would move heaven and earth to save us for a relationship? How do we know the Lord values his people? How do we know this, church? What is the ultimate evidence that God values his people? The the cross. I came across, this is one of the best quotes I've ever heard in my entire life. This is from Thomas Watson, a Puritan. I bet I get 15 emails this week. Please send me this quote. I'm just going to read it one time. But listen to this quote on adoption. He wrote, See the amazing love of God in making us his sons. The wonder of God's love in adopting us appears in this, that God should adopt us when he had a son of his own. Men adopt because they want children and desire to have some to bear their name. But God adopted us when he had a son of his own, the Lord Jesus. We needed a father, but he did not need sons. To give us Christ is more than if God had given us all the world. Are you kidding me? This is the best part. He can make more worlds, but he has no more Christ to give. Man. I was listening to that in my car, my truck, driving. I'm just like, ooh. I think I listened to it like ten times. God gave us his son so that we could be his sons and daughters. Oh, what love. Oh, what love. Oh, what grace. This should cause our hearts to swell in gratitude, in love, in affection for the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ. He gave us His Son to make us sons and daughters. He rescues us for relationship. Friends, isn't that incredible? Don't you just want to sing? Dave, let's go almost, almost. I'm going to skip down to the second half, God's character. Here's what I want to do. This is everything. God's commission is grounded in His character. God says go, and we go because of who He is. Amen? Would we go if He was a bad God? Would we go if He was an unfaithful God? Would we go if He was lacking in love and grace, said one thing one day and something else the next? No, because that's not God. What does God denote? Perfection. Holiness, awesomeness, worth. And how is the God of the Bible revealed? As all those things. Why do we go, church? Because of who He is. Amen? Check this out. Exodus 19, 16-25, God's character. I'm going to point to three things here. God is holy. God is awesome. God is merciful. We see that in the second half of Exodus 19. And each of those attributes call for a response. And here they are. Number one, God is holy. Verses 10-12. to The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Moses was to sanctify the people of Israel in preparation for their meeting with God. Such an encounter necessitated Israel's holiness. So what is the response? 
God is holy, so be what, church? Be holy. Close, mom. Same thing. Be holy. This is our appropriate response to the holy God. 1 Peter 1, 15-16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Number two. We're moving, guys. Number two. God is awesome. He's awesome. Verses 16 to 18. On the morning of the third day. Check, now, now think about this. This really happened. This is not fiction. This is not just a good story. This happened in time and space, just like the resurrection happened. This is not myth. This is not legend. This is God acting and working for his glory. So pay attention. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp, what? They trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain, the whole mountain, the whole mountain trembled greatly. Somebody say, whoa. Whoa. Thank you. Come on. God appears before Israel. This is called theophany, right? Theophany refers to a visible manifestation of God. God does that for his glory, but also for our good. He does that to comfort. He does that to instill confidence. He does that to wow. The Lord descends upon Mount Sinai in fire, accompanied by smoke and thunder in a trembling, quaking mountain. This surely reveals God's power and splendor. God alone is awesome. God's creation testifies to his immensity, his glory. So how do we respond to God's awesomeness? Fear God and listen to him. Now, check this out. You guys ready? None of you. Okay, I'm going to keep going. This is the appropriate response to God. It's all in reverence. A reverent trembling before the awesomeness of God. Again, here, God reveals his glory. And he does that so that we might glorify him. That's a great summary of Exodus. God reveals his glory in that so that we might glorify him. God's awesomeness also demands that we listen to him, namely that we come under his word. We see this in Mark 9 with the transfiguration. Mark 9, 7, and the cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Tony Merida writes, the three disciples saw glory and were told to listen to Christ. We too must listen to him. He's awesome. So we fear him, we revere him, and we listen to him. We come under his word. We obey him. And number three, God is merciful. What was the first one? God is? He's what? He's holy. Number two? He's awesome. Number three? He's merciful. I mean, don't, I mean, don't you want to follow such a God? I do. And the Lord said to Moses, this is verses 21 and 22. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn. Did he have to warn? No. What do we call that? That's mercy. Warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. 
Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. God reveals His mercy through His warnings. He warns of His wrath. What grace, what mercy. And what is the proper response to God's mercy? A mercy most beautifully seen in the Gospel at the cross, in empty tomb. It is worship. We worship the Lord. Last blank that you fill in. Worship the Lord. Friends, with that story I shared, Dr. Gary Pratico, what do we see about the God of the Bible? He takes the initiative in our salvation. He planned it. Amen? He promised it. And he fulfilled it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And through his work, through his work of rescue, we learn that he is holy, he's awesome, and he's merciful. So be holy, fear him, listen to him, and worship him with your life. All of this reveals his matchless worth, and because he's worthy, we worship him with our lives. How does all this point to Jesus in the gospel? Listen to this. Jesus is the perfect priest who made the ultimate sacrifice for his people. Amen? Jesus is our perfect mediator who brings us into God's presence. And Jesus is the perfectly holy one who gifts us. He gifts us. Those who trust in him, he gifts us his holiness so that we can stand righteous before God. Do you wish to know God today? Come to Jesus. Do you wish to be holy? Come to Jesus. Jesus has come. God in the flesh to make a way for sinners like us to be reconciled, to enjoy God relationally for how long, friends? Forever. Forever. So trust Him. Proclaim Him. Pursue Him. Listen to Him. Fear Him and worship Him with your life and with God's church. Enjoy a relationship with Him because He is worthy. Let's pray. God, what we see in Your Word, the summation of Your Word from Genesis to Revelation is the great truth that You are worthy. You are worthy. You are the Creator. You are the Sovereign Provider. You are good and faithful. You are gracious and merciful. You are holy and righteous. You are a God who saves. And you save your people. You rescue your people to rescue others. You rescue us to resemble you. And you rescue us for relationship. And all that for your glory. Father, we stand amazed at your great love. Change us by your spirit through your word. Help us to be your commissioned people going out to make disciples so that more and more people can behold your glory. We love you, Jesus. And we ask all these things in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.